Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. Hope everyone had a good week. Uh, We've got an announcement before we dive in today. So, for those of you who don't know, my oldest child has a plethora of medical issues, stemming all the way back to birth. And we've got a particularly difficult summer going on right now. And as a result, we needed some help. We ended up uh, doing some fundraising. I've been baking things for people at work to buy and 
Uh, we did a fundraiser dinner at a local restaurant, but it didn't amount to anywhere near enough. And that's when a good friend of mine, friend of the show, uh, guest co-host on one occasion at least, decided to step up. So, if you're a Magic player in the greater West Tennessee area, including all of the bordering states, I don't want to make anybody drive, you know, six hours out of their way just to come do this, but if that's what you want to do, I guess do you. <laughs> uh, if you want to earn your chance at a box of Ultimate Masters in a Paper Magic tournament, Mark your calendar, July 31st at 11 a.m., Scottish Inn in Jackson, Tennessee. We're going to be hosting a benefit dinner honoring my daughter. The proceeds from this event are going to go to her medical fund. We'll be doing some silent auction items. Um, more than likely, I will be baking another couple of rounds of sweets for people to munch on over the course of the event if they're interested. And we may or may not have some very special, very creative items up in silent auction. I don't know for sure yet. But for the particulars of the main tournament itself, the venue will seat about 50 people. And before we dive any further, if you plan on coming to this, I want you to know something very important. We are going to be requiring masks for this event. For two reasons. One, there's the possibility that Esther will be there to see all the people who came out to support her. But more importantly, whether she is or is not there, I can't risk bringing something home to her if I can help it. So... Bear that in mind, please. Masks will be required. Not requested, required. So, have that in your mind before you leave the house and make the drive over. And if that's not something you can get past, please just don't show up. <laughs> Having said that, the specifics for the tournament itself, uh, entry fee is going to be $30.00 price structure is first place wins a box of ultimate masters with box topper second place wins 12 packs of time spiral remastered third and fourth win six packs each of time spiral remastered and then four, uh, fifth through eighth win three packs each of time spiral remastered the number of swiss rounds will be dependent upon the number of participants And it, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be fun. The format will be modern, but if you want to come and show your support but can't play in the main event, if there's room, again, the venue will hold about 50 people. If there's room, we will be doing commander games off to the side. I mean, we have Brian Canada. We have Cure for the Common Game on hand. Why would we not play commander? You don't even need to bring a deck. He's got over 700 of them. <laughs> so, 
Uh, mark your calendar, July 31st, 11 a.m., Scottish Inn, Jackson, Tennessee. Bring your modern deck and $30. Earn your chance to win a box of Ultimate Masters and show your support for a member of the Magic community. So without further ado, let's dive into the show now that I've wasted five minutes of your time. Um, segment one is Budget Spotlight, where we're covering an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-oriented card that I think are worth more than the price they currently command. And our uncommon this week is Griffin Airy. Griffin Airy is one and a white for an enchantment. At the beginning of your end step, if you gain three or more life this turn, create a 2-2 Griffin token with flying. So it's a cheap payoff card for dedicated life gain. It functions as sort of an opposite lightning bolt. Instead of trading a card that instead of trading a card to deal three damage, you're trading a card that that gains life in order to generate something that will deal damage. And then if that card that gains life also does something else, you may get a little bit ahead. Now that's the basic philosophy as, as to why you would want to play this card. But the combination of its prohibitively low price combined with synergy with cards like Luris because it's a two-mana spell, the fact that it's a two-mana spell so it can sneak in under a lot of counter magic, especially on the play, and make your opponent think twice about countering something as mopey as a revitalize because they don't want to give you a free 2-2. There's some real value to be had there, and that card clocks in at a whopping 25 cents a copy. We've done worse than that before on this show, at the uncommon slot, several times. So if gaining life is what you like to do, and you like to do it in chunks of three, Griffin Aries got your hookup. Next on the list, our rare is Faceless Haven, a rare land from Kaldheim, and I am genuinely shocked to have this in Budget Spotlight. Just objectively speaking, genuinely surprised to have this available for Budget Spotlight. I didn't think it was cheap enough to be here. Faceless Haven is a land from Kaldheim, taps for colorless, or you can pay, it's a snow land from Kaldheim, I need to specify that. But you can pay three snow, and for those of you who don't know how that works, the snow symbol is kind of like the old generic symbol. It can be any color of mana, but it has to come from a snow source. It has to be mana generated by a snow permanent. But you can pay three snow, and Faceless Haven will become a 4-3 creature with all creature types until end of turn. And the reason I'm surprised about the price on this is this thing is $2.50 for what I would argue is today and going forward, unless we get something crazy in the fall set, the best creature land available in standard. And I know we just got a handful of them in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. I don't care. This thing's better. It's generic 
you know, the only the deck building cost to this is to play snow cards. And price tag wise, it really should come with the additional caveat of having to buy your snow lands, but they're a whole lot cheaper than they used to be too. I can remember when snow covered lands were like three, four, five dollars a piece, and now they're down to fifty cents because of the plethora of reprints and a lot of different art styles and card frames that make them a lot more accessible than they used to be. It's also, not for nothing, part of a standard legal method of putting Platinum Angel's text on a land. An interaction powerful enough that it got itself banned in the standard 2022 format on Arena, but is currently still legal in paper standard, and they're saying as of now, they have no plans on changing that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So our mythic for this week is Amaria's Call. It is four and triple white, I believe. I can't remember off the top of my head. Or a land. It's a double-faced card. It's one of the modal double-faced cards. Uh, it's the white mythic double-faced card, right? You know, the, the white counterpart to Shatter Skull Smashing or Agadim's Awakening. And what it does is it creates two 4-4 angel tokens with flying and non-angel creatures you control become indestructible this turn. Or on the back side, it's a white land that can enter untapped for the cost of three life. This represents both a fantastic way to close out a game and a land drop to help you cast the other ones. And that's the thing about these double-faced cards. They're either really good early because they're extra land drops without having to play a whole bunch of always lands in your deck, or they represent a way to help mitigate Mana Flood where playing a land in that, in that same slot would be rough. And not for nothing, but it's also one of those things... It's also both of those things, the ability to be a fantastic way to close out the game and to land, but it also has random synergy with cards that it really, like, similar situations, you know, seven mana, eight power flying creatures or land drops don't normally have, notably the ability to be found with cards like Augur of Bolas or Salundi Visions, depending on your format of choice. The two, in my mind, obviously, are Commander or standard. The fact that you can find this with Salundi Visions both as a threat to close out the game and as potentially a land drop. Like Salundi Visions for an untapped land drop is kind of massive sometimes. So just the ability to, to find this in a situation where you need either half of it off of something that would not normally be able to find it is really cool. And it's also among the cheapest of these cards with a price tag at $3. And then last but not least, our commander-focused card is Well of Lost Dreams. Well of Lost Dreams is, I believe, a four-mana artifact. Whenever you gain life, you can pay X mana where X is 
equal to or less than the amount of life you gained if you do draw X cards. This is one of the few ways that exists in Magic to directly translate life gain into cards. Uh, the only other one that comes to my mind is Dawn of Hope. And this clocks in at a much more efficient rate than Dawn of Hope. Because, for example, this alongside of Revitalize, it represents five mana, draw four cards. Because you pay the two, the two mana for Revitalize, draw a card, gain three life, well triggers, you pay three mana, draw three more cards. That's a pretty solid deal. We've been willing to do that before. Those of you who remember Ravkami 9 Standard, you remember Tidings being one of the powerful ways to tap out and dominate the game. Five mana, draw four. It's what this potentially represents. It's also nice as sort of a way to kick your small creatures or your life gain spells in order to draw extra cards out of them. You know, you have a Soul Warden on the field, or an Essence Warden, or a Soul's Attendant, or an Ajani's Presence, or any of the other myriad of ways to gain one life when a creature enters the battlefield. And you play a creature, and you get to pay one extra mana, and instead of extorting and draining everybody for one and gaining life, you can just draw cards. And play more creatures, which in turn allows you to gain more life, which in turn allows you to draw more cards, and you just keep ripping through your deck. It's one of the few ways out there that directly translates life gain into a tangible usable resource for gameplay. And I'm here for it. And again, the price tag on Well of Lost Dreams is $3. $3. I'm talking, play a tap land that gains a life. One of the refuges or one of the uh, cons of Tarkir tap lands. You know, play a Bloodfell Caves, gain a life, draw a card by paying one mana. That's that's really good. But with that in mind, because of the nature of this week's episode, I'm not doing a Brew of the Week. Instead, because the reason I'm not doing a Brew of the Week is because we're profiling a standard legal archetype from where it used to be back in the day to where it is now and why I wanted to talk about it. So, life gain as a dedicated strategy, it used to be bad. Because why on earth, you know, in, in a matchup between mono red and a life gain deck, dedicated like, all I want to do is keep my life total high and try to exhaust you and eventually play a big creature and win that way, right? We've seen examples of these decks over the years. Martyrtron comes to mind. The various forms of Martyr Proclamation, the... Um, oh, I'm trying, I can't, my, my brain's not functioning there. There just, there weren't clear-cut synergies, there weren't payoffs that were really massive other than having a high life total that made you hard to kill. You know, Firemane Angel decks. I could go on this for a little bit trying to think of cards that I tried to build around in my time. But there weren't 
clear-cut synergies for why you would want to do this. There's no clear signpost that says, hey, you should gain life because if you do, you get to do this. So it got to a point where just using whole cards to keep your life total high was just really a way to die on turn six instead of turn four. I.e., you'd gain some life to try to stave off the beatdown the aggro deck was giving you, but then you would inevitably flood out, not be able to gain life, and they would bash your face in. Like, incidental life gain was fine and helped steal back tempo and aggressive matchups, but as a dedicated strategy, like, I want to gain life as a theme, it was never really a competitive option. You know, incidental life gain from things like Absorb or um, Lightning Helix, for example, were great. You know, Lightning Helix, kill your 3-3, gain 3 life was a really good way to set the aggro deck back in its heyday and standard. You know, counter your curve-topping Haymaker and gain 3 life is a really good way to steal some tempo back to this day in historic. But things kind of started to change. I can't remember. I want to say it happened before or right after Rise of the Eldrazi released. Uh, we got Soul Warden was in standard. Soul's Attendant got reprinted or printed the first time in Rise of the Eldrazi. And then I want to say it was the core set after all of that that we got a Johnny's Pride Mate and Sarah Ascendant together in standard. Very briefly. I think one of them had gotten printed in the prior core set and the other one was in the standard legal one for post-rotation. So we had a few months where we got to play Soul Sisters. There was finally, at that point... A clear reason to be interested in gaining life. Because Sarah Ascendant and a Johnny's Pride Mate told you point blank, hey, if you can trigger a lot of life gain events and get your life total high, we are really stupid efficient creatures. Like, Sarah Ascendant became a one-mana 6-6 six, six flying lifelink. A Johnny's Pride Mate would frequently... Be a two-mana 4-4. Four, four. Or a two-mana 6-6 six, six in some games. Just an obnoxiously large creature for its mana cost. And that got a lot of people interested in trying to re, you know, rethink where the life gain deck was. Well, from then on, Wizards of the Coast has been gradually adding little bits, little nuggets of support here and there. We've seen it bleed into other colors... Uh, we had black cards in one of the core sets that cared about gaining life. We had additional like triggers for life gain over the course of the years. Cards like Authority of the Consoles, cards like uh, Blind Obedience, the entire extort mechanic. Uh, just a litany of ways to incidentally gain little packets of life. And then most recently they started doing a really good job 
actually translating life gain into card advantage. Dawn of Hope in Guilds of Ravnica was a clear example. For every one, for every life gain event you get, you can pay two mana and draw a card, and you can spend mana if you start to flood out to make one-one life linkers, which should, in theory, be able to chump block, giving you a life gain event, allowing you to draw again and try to get out of the flood. Griffin Airy and then the most recent Book of Exalted Deeds give you a clearly defined grindy long game win condition where if you get to sit these things on the table and you just trigger a handful of life gain events over the course of the game they can bury you if you don't do anything about it either by keeping the creature population under control or by destroying the permanents themselves which require more specialized removal as they are an artifact and an enchantment respectively and then in uh, Call Time, we got a card like Righteous Valkyrie. We got Heliod back in Theros Beyond Death alongside Daxos as another life gain enabler. Righteous Valkyrie, Heliod, Daxos. These cards allow you to take a more proactive edge where if you can get your life total high enough, fast enough, Instead of saying the Sarah Ascendant line where Righteous Valkyrie says, I'll get, I'll get big. Righteous Valkyrie says, no, everybody gets big. It's the glorious, it's the most glorious of glorious anthems when, uh, when Righteous Valkyrie procs. And now, most importantly, at least in standard, not the standard 2022 format on Arena, but regular standard. We have the Book of Exalted Deeds plus Faceless Haven combo that allows a dedicated life gain deck to win games that it normally would get kind of bodied by. Uh, the sacrifice matchup was not great. You could obviously get milled out. You could have a control player that would just kind of grind you down and you know, just as long as they weren't dead, it didn't matter. They would eventually get there. And now you have something that resembles inevitability over everybody if you are allowed to get to the mid game. And that's terrifying. So, what does this archetype do well? Well, first and foremost, it absolutely dominates a less than stellar draw from an aggro deck, from an aggressive an aggressive deck or like a pure aggro or an aggressive mid-range deck, if your draw isn't nutty, you're going to fall behind because you are not going to get the pressure that your deck is accustomed to getting early in the game. You use a you know wonderful combination of your creature's inherent size and then the ability to grind with some of your other cards. You're great against decks packing light removal suites or light interactive suites because you have a lot of different permanents that affect the game in different ways. I.e., you know, Griffin Airy can come in under a lot of counter magic so the opponent has to respect it if they want to not have to care about your revitalize. 
Same goes for Book of Exalted Deeds, but with that, they also have to consider that you may establish the prison lock on them and just make it to where they can't win. For those of you who don't know why, how that works, uh, Book of Exalted Deeds can put an enlightened counter on an angel. And that permanent gains, while you control this while you control this permanent, you can't lose and your opponents can't win. So, in conjunction with Faceless Haven, which is all creature types when you animate it, it's pretty strong. So, your opponent has to respect the possibility that it can take over the game two different ways at the same time. By making your opponent leave up some sort of an interactive element for the Faceless Haven when you animate it, and they have to respect the fact that every time you cast a Revitalize, you get another 3-3. Or every time uh, you use Heliod to make a creature gain lifelink until end of turn, and it punches you for 3, you get another 3-3. You can also steal games against slow decks because cards like Airy and Book get in under a lot of interaction. And are, the interactive answers available in formats are either not plentiful or the, are not useful against a wide enough range of permanents. Where do we struggle? Control decks with a good number of sweepers. If they can keep your board clear and interact with your life gain elements and just let you sit there with a bunch of payoff cards sitting on the table not getting triggered, it can be a bad time. The Red-Black Red X Sacrifice matchup, specifically, where cards like Claim the Firstborn, like Claim the Firstborn is obnoxious against Righteous Valkyrie. We, we've encountered this scenario on at least one occasion where we Played Hunt for Specimens, made a 1-1, played Claim the Firstborn to take Valkyrie, and then the played the lesson that we got off the Hunt for Specimens, which was Necrotic Fumes, to exile the Righteous Valkyrie that I stole from you to kill, uh, to exile another one of your creatures. That's pretty stinking strong. That's a really good way to pull way ahead on tempo, is to spend four mana to exile two of your opponent's creatures. Decks that don't stumble while beating you down can also be difficult for you to beat reliably, because in particular the standard version, Righteous Valkyrie, depends on getting your life total high. Cards like Righteous Valkyrie, Speaker of the Heavens, want you to get your life total high in order to start taking over the game. And if they're bashing your face in early in the game, it can be really difficult for you to get to the point where you can. And then last but not least, what I call the typical engine deck problems where you just draw the wrong half of your deck at the wrong time. You draw all your Val you draw like double Valkyrie and no other creatures. So you're left, you know, cycling a bunch of life gain cards trying to find them, but you never find them. Or you, like, play Heliod with that board, but you don't find Daxos or, you know, the, the deck losing to itself model. 
And then, of course, there are the issues unique to each variant, like the ones that are really light on removal in order to be more proactive tend to be bad against decks that can go wider than them. I played a game against the life gain, the, the typical mono white life gain deck with white blue magecraft, and I just ended up getting 10 spirit tokens out of multiple clarion spirits, getting a Lin and light scribe down, and then doing obnoxious things with mentor's guidance and show of confidence. So, by no stretch of the imagination am I going to pretend that this deck is broken, busted, or too good, or anything of the sort. It is. Uh, it's going to be a deck that a lot of people play. But it's not going to be a deck that I think, like, actually comes to define a format. So what are the variants? The popular ones, you have the classic mono-white mid-range, where you're just trying to play big, dumb creatures. You know, you want to get Daxos down on turn two. You want to get Valkyrie down on turn three. You want to get another Valkyrie down on turn four. By then, you should be able to get Heliod down with Devotion so you can gain the life from the Valkyries, which in turn puts counters on them, thanks to Heliod, and also in turn, you know, allows the Valkyries to trigger, and then you just end up beating them to death with a couple of giant creatures in the air while they can't get through your indestructible creature or your other creature with a giant backside. There's also the Mono White Prison variant, which eschews a lot of the kind of gimmicky pieces of the deck and instead focuses on the book Haven combo alongside cards like Revitalize and uh, Maze Mind Tome. And then we'll use like Griffin Airy and Book to dominate the board until such time that you give them an opening to execute the book haven combo and kill you and make it to where you can't win if you can't destroy a land and last but not least is that a spin-off of that same variant being black white prison which is the same thing but with removal spells and or disruption i mean from a, from a baseline standpoint, it's the same deck. But there's also black-white versions of the, the mid-range version. Like, splash colors in to, to help try to fill some of the gaps. It happens. My favorite variant that I've seen is the one that just got the combo band in Standard 2022, which is to just play Book of Exalted Deeds and Revitalize and Maze Mind Tome in your blue-white control deck. Your deck building cost is zero. You already want to play Dream Trawler. You already want to play uh, Book of Miletus. You already want to play Maze Mind Tome and a bunch of board sweepers and counter magic. Now you get the ability to play for the actual inevitability, and that's something that Blue White Control's always been really interested in. So similar to when we did the same thing with the Felidar Guardian Sahili Rai combo. We're going to do the same thing with this. The idea being... We have a combo that our opponent has to respect. And while they're worried about the combo, we can 
keep control of the game, draw cards, counter key threats, and, you know, anytime we happen to draw a revitalize with a couple of payoff cards on the board, we can generate pressure. So, as for fighting the deck, don't skimp on removal if, you, if you've got... Because it can be really frustrating to lose to this deck just because you didn't interact with it. Like, you couldn't race it. You know, your draw was a little substandard. Your deck doesn't play a lot of removal. And you just don't have it. Like, you just can't kill the Valkyrie before it procs and their whole team gets too big for you to kill. If you don't have much room... Aim more for versatile interaction, especially in best of one. This is going to be a deck we see a lot in best of one because of how difficult it is to fight with traditional lines of removal. Like, if your deck is playing cards like Frostbite and just generally speaking, cheap removal that is really, <clears throat> sorry, cheap removal that's really specialized towards not falling too far behind a regular aggro decks. You're going to have a bad time. Like, staring at a hand of Blood Chief's Thirsts, looking at two Righteous Valkyries feels kind of rough. Or, you know, staring at a Heliod that you can't kill because you don't have a way to exile creatures and you don't have a way to get enough white pips off the board to turn it off. Like, it, it's rough. Or staring at Heartless Act when your opponent puts counters on their creatures with Heliod. It is rough. And then if you can support it, uh, Field of Ruin is currently legal and standard because it can destroy the Haven. Or it's currently a good standard legal option. I should rephrase that. Because it can destroy Haven at a mana neutral, or at least at a land neutral uh, amount. You spend one land to destroy their land, and then you both get another one. But if you're destroying a Faceless Haven with an Enlightened Counter on it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, and also, one that's going to be in Standard after Rotation that does a very similar thing is Cleansing Wildfire, which destroys a, destroys a land, the opponent goes and gets a Basic, and you draw a card. That's another good way to clear out the combo. So that at the very least, you can just worry about fighting the permanents on the board, not whether or not you can get rid of a land. So, closing thoughts on this deck, or this archetype. While this archetype is by no means a world beater, like, I don't think it's... It's, a, it's been a hard bias to get past. Honestly. Because I, you know, I played Magic for, what, 16 years? 17 years? And up until very recently, life gain decks were seen largely as gimmicky, not very good. There's no incentive to play them. Like, you're either all the way in on it and it's still not good enough or you just don't bother with it, you know. That's the, the mentality I've had grilled into my head since I started playing Magic. And now this one's like pretty good. It's not great, 
was pretty good. Especially in best of one, where you are by nature of the format going to run into it more often. One, because it's a little more difficult to interact with than your regular aggro and mid-range decks, but more importantly, there's a lot of aggro decks in best of one. And if their draw is less than perfect and your draw is good, you get to beat up on aggro decks. You just get to throw them out back and take their lunch money. So I can understand the appeal, I guess, is, is my perspective. But I do think similar to Nexus before it, this archetype is going to struggle in sideboarded games, especially if it becomes popular enough that people actually start like sideboarding for it. You know what I mean? Like Nexus started to, to fall off as people started playing more interaction. Gyruda combo started to fall off as more people started playing counter magic again. I think this is going to be the same situation where it's good, but I don't think it's going to be something that just breaks the game in half or anything of that nature. So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Uh, we're going to be back next week answering a Twitter question that was posted to me. Next week is going to be five decks that define me as a player. Because I wanted to do an answer right then and there. And then I wanted to do what Mason did, which was to, you know, do a, a note and flesh it out a little bit. And I said, why flesh it out a little bit when I can just get everything out in an episode that maybe somebody will be interested in. So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this episode. You've got questions, you've got comments, you've got concerns, leave them down in the comments below. Remember, if you're interested in getting a chance to win a box of Ultimate Masters, July 31st, Scottish Inn, Jackson, Tennessee, 11 a.m., wear your mask, bring your modern deck, and come say hi. <laughs> and with that, it is time for the long long overdue return of our favorite segment if I can get it to pull up <laughs> technology am I right especially when you're sitting in the driveway <laughs> uh, Twitter our first one from Twitter is Brad. <laughs> Are you holding a Wheel of Fortune? Why, do you need a hand? <laughs> to which he then said, in a, in a follow-up post, with an image of Scryfall where he was trying to, he, he had happiness typed into the search bar and it said no cards found he says wouldn't would you look at this i knew it happiness just isn't in the cards for me
shame. Not really. We love you, Brad. Now let's get the Discord ones pulled up because Brad is trying to accidentally become a secondary co-host on this show. Uh, first of all, in the Hazy Game Media Discord, let's find it. There they are. I said, I'm testing a version of the Witherbloom to Tokens deck that splashes red for Claim the Firstborn, Akron War, and Corvald. Why? Well, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> Spencer says, why do pauper players get along? It's because we have a lot in common. And my, my, the last one in the Heezy Discord... A buddy of mine planned on building slivers, so I jumped online and found him the premium deck series bundle to get him started. You know, just so I could foil his plans. <laughs> I don't care if y'all like it or not, I do. <laughs> and last but not least, we have a section of them from Brad. If three more. John Avon must be a mono blue player because he sure loves to draw islands. <laughs> it's funny because I play all John Avon islands when I play a mono blue deck. It's a fun nugget for everybody. Uh, he also goes on to say there's a new horror movie coming out set on Meriden. It's, it's directed by Mem Night Shyamalan. I guess we could call Affinity coming back a heck of a plot twist, so it kind of works that way. <laughs> and last but not least, Brad said, I thought about writing some fan fiction based on Tarkir. I don't know if it'll be good, though. It has its pros and cons. <sighs> that one was bad even for me. But with that in mind, again, thank you everybody for listening. Again, the outpouring of support we've gotten so far in this entire situation has been nothing short of mind-blowing. And for those of you who are able to come to the benefit tournament, I look forward to seeing you. Uh, but we have to sign off now. And with that in mind, laugh hard. Gain some life for profit. But be kind to each other. Everybody's got stuff we're going through right now. Okay? We'll catch you next week. Five decks that define me. Be safe, everybody. <laughs>